This episode of The Paceline is brought to you by Health IQ. You ride your bike, you stay in shape, so you deserve lower life insurance rates. Check out healthiq.com slash paceline to learn just how much your riding can save you on premiums. Now, on to the show. One of us is sick, so what a perfect excuse to talk about medication. This is a, a medication that's not actually available in the UK. So how did you got, have a guy bring it from the UK to France to give it to an athlete? Oh, and this, uh, this particular decongestant, not really great for asthmatics. And how to grow a training ride into the biggest Grand Fondo going. You know, the risk was let's invest in making this the best event possible. We're going to lose a lot of money on this this year, but the idea is to create something that is representative of the quality and the style of event that we want to put on. And if that's what people want, we're going to prove that that's what we can deliver, and then they'll come back in greater numbers in the future. Dr. Fatty, paging Dr. Fatty, Dr. This Fatty Dr. to the Fatty. bandy. <laughs> uh, so it's just you and me today, dude. Uh, we've got well, no, what seems to be the problem. Uh, well, the voice of reason um, it, it doesn't have much of a voice as I understand it. No, oh. he's in uh, bed. The pace line, the podcast on two wheels. Uh, yeah, well, it's, that's my, it's that's like, my impression of hottie with a cold. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the, patient, the podcast on... <coughs> um, yeah, so we're missing him today, folks. Um, and, and that's both literally and metaphorically true. Uh, we, we, we don't have him, and we do miss him. Um, yes. Yeah, so... Uh, Get better, hottie. Yeah, yeah, we miss you. Uh, I think we're still making him edit the podcast, though, right? <laughs> <laughs> he can cut this part out. Yeah. But don't. Maybe, maybe we shouldn't laugh about that part too much. <laughs> don't. Um, so, uh, well, nice to be back. Um, fun to have you. I guess we should say, yes, this is the Pace Line Podcast. I'm uh, one of the hosts, uh, Patrick Brady of Red Kite Prayer, where I'm publisher, bottle washer, um, photo editor, uh, email answerer, um, and bathroom cleaner. Wow. Um, that is a lot of responsibility. And I'm Fatty, and my nickname is increasingly appropriate as I spend more and more time off the bike recovering from hernia surgery, and I have no problems apparently disclosing way too much information. <laughs> You're a high discloser. <laughs> All right. Hey, yeah. this show is not very tight so far, so let's get on with it, okay? Yeah. So uh, we've been doing uh, a little promotion on behalf of World Bike Relief, where you have led the charge not just admirably, but most impressively. Uh, why don't you catch people up with where we are on that? Heck yeah. So um, like you just mentioned, World Bicycle Relief and I have been working together for uh, since 2009. And I've done, uh, pretty much annually, a fundraiser called the Grand Slam. And 
this year we did some math and found that we are close to raising a million dollars. As of recording time, in fact, we are less than $20,000 away from hitting the million dollar mark. And we are giving away some amazing prizes to people who donate. We'll be drawing randomly. And you can, on the uh, on the RKP site, you'll be able to get all the details you want. But we draw randomly, and we are giving away a Kuat NV 2.0 rack. We're giving away a Silka Super Pista Pump. We're giving away Silka Tools. We are giving away three Dream Bikes. And I am talking about a Madone 9 Series with Zip. 454 NSW wheels, as well as a Tarmac S-Works built up with uh, whatever parts you want from SRAM and ZIP, meaning pick your wheel set, except for you can't have 454 NSW wheels because we only get one of those, but any other ZIP wheel set you want and whatever drivetrain setup you want, whatever brakes you want. I mean, seriously, it's, you know, pick your own. Candy shop's open. You got the keys, right? Amazing. Wow. As well as a giant TCR with the same build parameters. That is a an amazing, uh, an amazing opportunity for anyone who loves uh, cycling and uh, spends time obsessing over builds. So fantastic. And as of today, um, this is a super special one because we crossed the within twenty thousand dollars of the million dollar mark. We have just announced a prize where you are going to get a most expenses most expenses paid trip to Portugal to ride with Ingamba Tours and spend basically a week getting the full blown pro uh, tour treatment. Uh, food is all taken care of. Your luggage is going to be moved from place to place. You get. Um, just the absolute, you know, your laundry is done for you. Everything is taken care of and it is the ultimate, just deluxe, no holds barred, wonderful cycling trip. And that, uh, the only expense you have to pay is getting yourself to Portugal and back the, this is uh, a biggie and we are super excited about it that there are so many grand prizes in this grand slam so that's why it's called that the grand many grand prizes in the grand slam and the thing is i still have a couple of bikes that i haven't even announced in this yet and by donating you are automatically in the drawing for all of the prizes including the ones that i announce after you donate so get on board let's get to a million dollars and that million dollars, every 147 of it goes to a uh, don't it goes to a, a bike for a schoolgirl in Africa. It makes it possible for them to make the you know five to ten kilometer trip to and from school safely and quickly. These people have to work so hard just to stay alive. You know, getting water you know, grinding corn. I've been there. It's incredible. Um, and with a bike, they can do so many things so much more quickly. It's a substitute for the infrastructure that we all take for granted. And it's awesome. So World Bicycle Relief, this Grand Slam, go to bit.ly slash WBR2016. And that concludes my infomercial. Well, <laughs> I, I just want to jump in 
and add that I'm amazed by the efficiency of this organization. Yeah. Uh, you know, when we were talking about it last week and I forget what the number that was named and, you know, uh, you know, you mentioned how many bikes that was going to buy. And, yeah. you know, I was thinking about, well, you know, so many charities, you know, take out, you know, a fair percentage for operating costs, you know, making sure mm -hmm. that they have an office that stays open and all that sort of thing. And how, yeah. you know, the, the, the donations that people make frequently get kind of diluted, but it's amazing sure. to me, the efficiency here, if you give $147, that's a bike. You know, if you give, yeah. if you give, uh, $294, that's two bikes, you know, and you just keep ratcheting that number up and it's just more bikes and more bikes and more bikes and more bikes. And, uh, yeah, it's pretty amazing. It, and it's the, mind blowing. It, <laughs> and it's worth mentioning why, uh, WBR's overhead is remarkably low. And that is due to a really great partnership with SRAM. Um, you know, the co-founder or one, the founder of uh, WBR, FK Day, is brother, of course, to Stan Day, and they both work for SRAM, but all of WBR's, you know, basically their overhead expenses, they, they can stay in the SRAM HQ for free, their phones, their internet, their... IT expenses, you know, basically all of the general overhead stuff is just absorbed by SRAM. Yeah. And that makes them able to work with remarkably low overhead. And so it's pretty amazing. You know, the, you know, there's a company that's basically subsidizing to a great degree the overhead that normally comes with a, uh, with a charity. So, yeah, kudos, kudos to SRAM for doing a, a good thing uh, for an amazing charity. Yeah, it's it's really great. And uh so well next week we'll we'll have another update on this. I can't wait to see yeah. what, what the number becomes by then. Uh but this has been absolutely remarkable and I'm I'm pleased to uh have a chance to just be supportive of this in some way. Absolutely. And and you know, one more sort of general kudos and shout out to a lot of bike companies. Uh, for being really with this, I'm uh, I'm going to be sort of tipping my hat on this, but you know Trek has provided a frame for this, and you know super top end frame, right? The Madone mm -hmm. Nine Series frame, it's yeah. a forty five hundred dollar frame. Specialized pr has provided an S Works Tarmac frame. That's a you know that is another very expensive high end frame. I'm tipping my hat now by saying Cannondale has donated a bike. <laughs> All right. Okay. So, so we're going to be hearing more about Cannondale next week. Um, and Giant has donated a bike. Kuat has donated their top end, high end rack. Um, Silka has donated uh, a super piece to pump as well as their really great hex wrench set. You, you know, and I both have one of those and love them. Yeah. And let's just talk about how all of Silka is smaller than specialized marketing department and they're sure. a part of this i mean good golly that's a that's a pretty special thing they've done yep uh just love to see and you know kuat is another smallish company that is doing big things yeah. you know doing doing beautiful work and you know really thinking through design of something that we've kind of had sort of accepted as always being going to be kind of clunky and ugly they've made it beautiful and perfect as far as i'm concerned you know, i'm saying this as an envy owner who just bought one retail because it was such a great, uh, 
you know, it's such a great setup. Yeah. So anyway, lots, you know, lots of great companies who even in pretty tight times in the bicycle industry are still donating stuff because they're seeing uh, a vision that works, frankly, and is making a difference for people. Absolutely. Okay. So moving right along, um, there's been a story published by the Daily Mail, um, written by Matt Lawton, uh, the same writer who broke the story about a suspicious package being delivered to Bradley Wiggins uh, at the 2011 uh, Criterium du Dauphiné. This is the tune-up stage race uh, right before the Tour de France, uh, in which usually, you know, the future tour uh, tour contenders will really start to show their hands just a little bit. And it's not uncommon for uh, the Criterium du Dauphiné winner to go on and win the tour. Um, that's happened any number of times over the years. Um, and so there was a there was a package delivered and everybody was wondering, okay, what's up with this package? What and, is in that package? And well, and the thing is, it's like, you know, the media wasn't getting any answers and, you know, uh, the, you know, the UCI, nobody was getting really any answers, although the UCI wasn't really asking a lot of questions. Um, but, you know, the media was after them. Um, cycling fans wanted to know and they kind of kept obfuscating and whatnot. And so finally, uh, David Brailsford, the head of Sky, um, and one of the coaches, Shane Sutton, uh, this, he was Bradley Wiggins' personal coach at that point in time. And remember, this is 2011, just prior to Wiggins winning the tour. So the, uh, the English Parliament uh, called them in and like said, you're going to answer some questions. And so finally... Uh, Brailsford, Brailsford says, oh, it was fluimucil, uh, um, which is a decongestant. Decongestant. It's an over-the-counter medication, okay? Costs about 10 bucks. Really cheap mm -hmm. stuff. Well, it's not really a great answer because they had <laughs> a, uh, a coach, um, Cope, uh, fly from Manchester to France to deliver it, Okay. Um, oh, I do that. I do that all the time. Yeah, I mean, this is yeah. like when I was in graduate school. <laughs> I've lost my homework. My mother drives to New Jersey from Memphis, finds my homework, and drives it to me in Massachusetts. It's like, really, this is your plan? You know, um, that's a bad metaphor, though, because many mothers would actually do that. And, well, and, and <laughs> yeah, my mom would have, but it would have been just you know, absolutely. Oh, you silly. would have paid hell for it. Well, there's that too. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. I'm getting us off topic, aren't I? <laughs> not really. It's, I'd say it's related. Um, but you know, it's like, yeah, this, this is a, a medication that's not actually available in the UK. So how did you got, have a guy bring it from the UK to France to give it to an athlete? Oh, and this, uh, this particular decongestant, not really great for asthmatics. Now, they say it was for hmm. allergies, and we know that uh, Wiggins is allergic, but he's also an asthmatic. Why would anybody, especially in an operation that's so allegedly careful with the health of their athletes, why would they give him a, a medication that might actually harm him? Um, you know, it's just... And then on top of that, initially... Brailsford said, oh, well, you know, that was delivered to the bus and Wiggins wasn't back to the bus after the, the podium ceremony. So he was never really even there. Meanwhile, on YouTube, there's video showing him being interviewed outside the bus. So they've lied there. Um, 
you know, they also said, oh, the package was for Emma Pooley. She was 700 miles away in Spain. Um, so, you know, we've got them caught in a couple of lies. But the worst thing, the most damning thing of all, I think, um, and I could be wrong on this, but the most damning thing is um, prior to the publication of this latest story for the Daily Mail, um, Brailsford sat down um, with the writer, um, Lawton, and asked him, you know, is there anything else we can do to kind of make the story go away? Come again? <laughs> I, I just, I'm, be, I'm beginning to think that you don't buy every aspect of this story. Oh, dude. I, you know, I'm, I, uh, look, <laughs> I used to write a lot about doping and the problems that I was seeing and my disgust with how the sport was dealing with this. And finally, there was enough of a revolt from our readership that, you know, you're writing about too, uh, doping too much, and we don't believe any of these guys are clean. Uh, we're done with it. I was getting these emails, and certainly, you know, in the comments, um, I just figured, you know what? We're really going to pull back from covering pro mm-hmm. racing in any sort of way. Um, you know, we weren't doing classic race reports, um, but we were doing a lot of commentary. Um, yeah. And... I started to really see a dip in our readership numbers when I would go to Google Analytics. It's like those posts weren't even getting clicked on anymore. Hmm. I was like, you know, yeah, we're just, <laughs> we're not going to yeah. do this anymore. Um, I would have been one of those guys who was not clicking on those stories. Um, <laughs> well, and, and since you, you were a loyal reader long before you were a contributor, yes. yeah, you were, you were part of that fall off we saw. That's exactly right. And it's not just RKP where I was not clicking on those stories. I, you know, thanks to stuff like this, uh, I honestly have lost, I would say, about 90% of my interest in pro cycling. Um, You know, you talking about this, I'm like, oh, well, this is interesting, but I haven't been reading about it. And I know the stories are there, and I knew that there was uh, some mysterious MacGuffin that was Wiggins-related, and I don't care. Yeah. Um, And I don't mean that in a hoity-toity way that I am so over uh, or that I am too good to be. uh, Right. You're not looking down your nose, but it just just hasn't. literally have lost interest. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Well, and we were talking about this last summer in terms of our our interest, you know, in the tour itself and how Mm -hmm. we don't have the same passion for it that we used to. Um, Yeah. Love cycling more than I ever have care less about pro cycling than I ever have. Um, it's, uh, and, and, you know, so I think that this has, and and I don't think I'm an unusual person in that respect. I think that I might be the average cycling fan slash Joe. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're, we're seeing teams contract and we're seeing teams, uh, have less and less budget and having harder and harder times getting primary sponsors. And I think that it's just going to continue to be that way. And yeah, I feel bad for folks who are really amazing cyclists and have, uh, I, I guess, have, have an expectation that if they are fantastic, they are going to be able to get, you know, get work and they're not going to be able to. And that's too bad. Yeah. But, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. You know, there's, yeah, there's just such a massive credibility problem. Um, yeah. You know, and there are, I believe that the sport is the cleanest it has ever been, but 
Yeah. You know, I mean, it's it, it's like you but go it's on. Too and, late. <laughs> well, there's that, but it's also like you know, you you go for a, a muddy mountain bike ride, and you know your your back ends up splattered, and your front's clean. It's like, well, yeah, that's an improvement, but <laughs> you still need to get undressed before you walk in the door. You know, um, <laughs> maybe that's not a great metaphor. <laughs> um, uh, this is the oh. episode called Problematic Metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> Brought to you by, um, yeah. Um, speaking of which, uh, we should probably get to that mid-roll uh, for Health oh, IQ. Awesome. Um, podcast yeah. listeners, a mid-roll is the commercial in-between segments on a podcast. Yeah. and, and <laughs> It's new vocabulary, man. They got to learn it from us. That's yeah. what we're here for. Yeah. Um, so, yes, we have a sponsor. It's Health IQ. Um, they are um, – they provide a service to uh, – man, I'm not doing this very well today. <laughs> um, they, um, they have sourced life insurance options for people who are healthy. And so, you know, if you're looking for life insurance and you're a cyclist – you know, they provide an opportunity to get discounts that you would not be able to get just going out and sourcing your life life insurance on your own. Um, I certainly suffered this, you know, when I went looking for mine after my first son was born. Um, you know, the, the questions that I got and the physical that I got uh, didn't take my health, my, my active life, um, my low resting heart rate. I was really frustrated about that. You know, they didn't take any of that into consideration. And um, what Health IQ does is they use science and data to fight for lower rates on on life insurance um, for health conscious people. So it's not just cyclists. You know, it's anybody who walks, runs, triathletes. You know, if you're a swimmer. Um, and the thing is, what this really keys on is that. Um, Avid cyclists have a 45% lower cancer risk, an 18% lower heart disease risk, and up to 28% lower risk of early death. Those are things that are really, you know, tangible differences uh, for underwriters of, of life insurance. And so they've provided a form where you can shop for life insurance and get better rates. That's really what this comes down to. And we're grateful to them for supporting us. So go to healthiq.com slash uh, the paceline paceline right? yeah yeah right. healthiq.com slash paceline and it'll be in our show notes there'll be a direct link from there and yeah. we'll get better at doing mid rolls there's your <laughs> vocabulary word again yeah <laughs> um okay so now the big feature of today's show um in the wake of our piece uh our segment last week about uh usa cycling and how they're now uh, helping to uh, or offering to sanction uh, gravel events and fondos, and they have like a little mini license that they're offering. I thought, you know, I'm going to go talk to Carlos Perez, a bike monkey, and see what he thinks of all of this. And we sat down and um, I recorded for 40 minutes. He had an awful lot to say, and we'll just leave it to that. So I'm here with Carlos Perez, CEO, founder, and uh, chief boss man of Bike Monkey. And uh, we sat down in the wake of the recent USA Cycling announcement that they're going to do uh, a, a kind of licensing for fondos and gravel events. Um, you know, I keep telling people this, Carlos, and it's true. I mean, I liked Bike Monkey events so much that's a real part of why I moved to Sonoma County. 
it it still feels weird to me to say that to people, but your events were such a great showcase for the area, you know, that you gave me kind of the venue uh, to fall in love with this place. Um, and so now uh, I don't have to miss your events anymore. <laughs> um, for our listeners who've never done a Bike Monkey event, you know, why don't you tell people a little bit about, you know, what makes Bike Monkey different, aside from just being in Sonoma County, where it's beautiful? Um, that always, to me, is a little tough question to answer because we just do what we do, you know. This is, everybody just kind of walks their walk, and we walk our walk. And um, I think maybe the thing that sort of sets us apart from a lot of event organizers is First, the most obvious, we have a full-time staff. And we have people that are sitting here at the desk that'll answer your questions on our website in real time. You know, if you're on our website and you've got a question, you click on a little link at the bottom and you say, hey, I'm wondering about jersey pricing or when's your next event? And Erica or Jen or Clemence or even myself will answer the phone or answer the you know text and we'll, we'll chat about it. So having a full-time staff allows us to do things that a lot of event organizers can't do, right? Um, I think in the U.S., a lot of the events that we'll go out and do are not produced by full-time event organizers. They're, you know, quote-unquote mom-and-pop operations where um, maybe the event director is, you know, a full-time employee of the county and their resource department or, you know has a job as an engineer yep. uh, or is a, is a software developer and does this on the side. Um, we had a real opportunity with Levi's Grand Fondo to um, invest in what we wanted to do in the future as an organization. And what that was was to truly put quality over quantity and take risks that, <clears throat> um, you know, maybe um, – well, we're lucky they, they worked out. You know, the risk was let's invest in making this the best event possible. We're going to lose a lot of money on this this year, but the idea is to create something that is representative of the quality and the style of event that we want to put on. And if that's what people want, we're going to prove that that's what we can deliver, and then they'll come back in greater numbers in the future. And time and time again, that's proven itself to be true. And um, so I would say that we're an organization that is founded, I think, on the principle of taking those risks. You know, if you have a dream to do something different or unique, you have to be willing to take risks. You have to be willing to say, well, if I lose it all on this idea, then I gave it a shot. And at least I know. At least I know. And a lot of people aren't willing to take that risk because risk is really scary. Um, I'm, I think, a little bit more risk-prone in that regard where if I believe in something, I'm willing to take the risk of um, following, trusting myself. And, um, you know, I think that's <laughs> sometimes can be a little nerve-wracking for some of our employees because they, they might question those uh, directions sometimes. But most of the time... They, uh, they pan out and, and it works and I think that that has helped to um, build that belief institutionally um, I don't have to, it's not an uphill battle all the time when I, I say I want to take a risk and do something, I think people trust me 
Um, and people are willing to take their own risks too. And sometimes they're not always right. Sometimes we, we fail, we fall down and, and, and mess up, make a mistake, we lose a lot of money and we can't make it work and then we have to go back to the drawing board and figure it out. But um, I think that's probably one of the things that sets us apart more is that we're willing to take those risks. Uh, because for me, if I can't do it the way that I want to do it, then I don't want to do it at all. You know, if, if I can't put on the best events, then I just, I don't want to do it. You know, it's, that's not who I am. I, I want to make sure that people feel like they're getting their money's worth. I want people to be happy and, um, you can't make everybody happy, but we still try. Sure. Let's talk about a few of the kind of nuts and bolts things that characterize, uh, bike monkey events. I mean, you've got your own registration, you know, uh, you've got your own, uh, your own timing system. Um, you know, I, I mean, when I was doing the, the gelati cup a couple weeks ago, I switched bikes and, uh, I was able to get another number to stick on my seat post. Uh, so not only did you have a great timing system, but I was impressed that like, I didn't have to try to peel my old number off and then tape it back on by some lousy method. Uh, you know, Jen was on top of it was like, here you go. Um, you know, what are, what are some of the other things that you're proud of that make Bike Monkey events different? Um, well, uh, I mean, I guess I'm, I'm proud of the, you know, the team, obviously. Like, everybody works really hard and um, is passionate about it. People come to work at Bike Monkey usually because, number one, they have a passion for it. They maybe volunteer, or they have a significant other who has raced our events, and um, that's that's actually how we've received most of our employees is by uh, the network of relationships that we've built. People going, "Wow, this is this is really cool. I love the energy at this event. I love the at all of these events, and um, you know everybody seems happy. I want to be a part of that." Um, and so, first and foremost, like our team is amazing you know we've got amazing people that put their heart and back into everything that we do um, sometimes there's tears you know I mean it's it's an emotional thing um, to to put these events on it's not just a mundane like I'm gonna show up and I'm gonna do what I'm told kind of thing like everybody's a problem solver so uh, first and foremost I'm, I'm most proud of that I'm most proud of the people that work at Bike Monkey and what they bring to the table which is their their heart and soul you know um, I'm also proud of our capabilities. Um, we, we really, I mean, there's a lot of really smart people and um, we, um, we've, we've been able to look at problems um, or challenges and seek solutions for them that are long-term. Um, and my background is software development. Uh, I was a programmer analyst, systems analyst for Medtronic and, uh, and another uh, medical device manufacturer for many years and prior to that I I was self-taught uh, computer programmer and that was my like backup passion after playing professional ice hockey and um, so I I started writing software when I was just a little little kid like my dad brought home a, a computer um, when I was like six years old and <laughs> it had a basic programming book in it and uh -huh. I just I, I don't know why that's just me I I've like an engineer at heart or whatever and I I locked on to computer programming 
and that led me into this career of uh, developing systems to automate manual processes. So using computers to help shorten the amount of human effort that goes into doing something. And um, I kind of borrow that uh, idea for everything that we do. So a lot of the things that an event organizer does is repetitive, are repetitive. Um, you know, like loading the trailer or prepping the equipment or, you know, coming up with an outline for the production of an event and race timing being one of those. Um, registration management and, and a lot of data handling being one of those. And that's my expertise. And so I, I still do a lot of software development in-house for our own business needs. You know, mm -hmm. when we need a registration system, well, I built one. When, when we needed a, a race timing solution, I built one, you know, and it's constantly being modified. It's been uh, going through, it's got 10 years of uh, upgrades and iterations on it to solve the needs that we have. You know, we go to an event, we're like, oh, we need a solution for uh, splitting these lap times because sometimes there's human error. And guess what? You can't eliminate human error. So our software needs to be good enough to allow us to correct for human error. And, and that's the way I developed it, wow. is the acceptance of human error, that people are going to make mistakes. So make the software responsive to those mistakes, because that's the one thing you can't fix. You can't fix human error. I'm going to show up hungover one day, and, or, or maybe somebody else is. I, I try not to show up hungover, but that's what happens. These people right. come up, they're tired, they're exhausted, they're, they're, you know, they're dehydrated, they, they make mental mistakes. And, and you have to have a contingency plan for that. And, and so that's how I develop our solutions is, you know, stepping back and going, well, what are the things that could go wrong? And how do we account for those and solve for them? So I'm proud of that, too. Um, that's just a, something that I, I enjoy doing, um, and I apply it every day at our business. Well, it, I mean, hearing you say that helps explain to me, at least I think it does, you know, why... I mean, I really think you're the only event promoter I've ever run across that can do a great event for 300 people and a great event for 7,500 people. Um, you know, most of the smaller promoters I know don't have the ability to scale up. They just don't have that skill set. And at the same time, most of the event promoters I know that are doing big stuff don't want to touch something that's going to be a less than 1,000 people. And so you've defined what it is you do a little differently. It's not about the numbers of people. It seems to be about the quality of experience. Yeah. Um, and one of the other, for me, you know, as, a, as an attendee, you know, a com quote-unquote competitor, um, since I'm always well down in the numbers, uh, one of the other things that I, I note from the experiential end about going to a Bike Monkey event is afterwards and you know honest to god beer helps but people are always really blissed out at the end of your events and i can't remember too many other events i've gone to in my life where people really want to hang around until the last award is given the last competitors come across the line the last beer is swallowed um they're you know unless they need to get home for family or something else people are sticking around um, I mean, yeah, like I said, beer helps, but, but there's more to it than that with you guys. Where, where do you think that comes from? Well, we lose sleep over it at night. You know, I mean, I, leading up to an event, we're playing over in our heads, 
what's the day gonna look like? When someone shows up at the race, we ask ourselves, do they know how to get there? Do they know what the registration process is going to be like? Do they know what time they need to get there to register? Do they know how they're going to be awarded and what the competition is going to look like in terms of how we're scoring people? Do they know when our awards presentation is? Do they know what we're going to be doing after the race? Informing people is one of the most crucial elements to all of that, and I think we do a good job of that. We make sure people know what to expect. Even if we were going to put on a shit event, a shit event can come across... uh, people can have fun as long as they know what to expect so setting the expectation is you know you're going to put on like a bare bones basic minimum event pitch it that way don't say that it, you know you're going to put on this amazing event people are going to expect certain things say we're going to put on a piecemeal like this thrown together cobbled event there could be tons of mistakes shit could go wrong sideways like anything could happen they come with that expectation and so when it goes that way hey guess what they're fine. They expected it. So that's number one. We make sure that people know what they're getting into. Um, and so that's the first step, I think, to scalability. If you're putting on a small event, don't make it sound like you're putting on a grand fondo or some huge event. Uh, be honest up front. Um, if you're putting on a huge event, you know, let people know what they need to know ahead of time so that when they get to the information booth, they don't have a thousand questions because you can't answer a thousand questions for times 7,000 people. You need to make sure people are informed of all the different moving parts to an event. So Levi's Grand Fondo, for example, you know, we have all kinds of moving parts. We've got the, the registration process, the expo afterward, or, you know, on Friday, we've got the, um, the process for staging correctly, the information about how you are timed, information about traffic control and the rules of the road, aid stations, and we call them villages because they, they are, and how to... They're significant. Yeah, where they're at, what mile marker, you know, uh, training tips, like all kinds of stuff. And that takes a lot of work to inform people and, and help them through the process so that when they show up, they, they're ready, you know? And you, a big part of making sure that people have a good time is making sure that they show up ready for what it is that they're going to experience because then they they don't have a question every five minutes about like well, now where are we supposed to go you know turns into a treasure hunt at that point like, I don't, yeah <laughs> and not in a good I don't, way i don't know where, where are the course markings like where you know our course markings are two feet by two feet each arrow you know it takes a solid six days to mark the course on Levi's grand fondo so we try to make it obvious, and, and I think that that's a, a big uh, reason why people can show up and be blessed out, blissed out because um, everything has, they, they've kind of been catered to um, to a much higher degree. Yeah, it's it's remarkable. Uh, I mean, you know, just a, a few weeks ago at the Gelati Cup, you know, once Remba rolled up with the kegs of beer and we started giving beer hand-ups, uh, it quickly... Um, Evolved. I won't say devolved, but it quickly evolved into uh, arguably the most enjoyable afternoon I've ever had at a cross race. And I mean, I've never had a bad time at a cross race. Uh, but a beer hand ups, n- new thing for me. Uh, so uh, it was it was a lot of fun. Now, uh, technically speaking, activities of that sort not the sort of thing 
that USAC would uh, smile upon. Um, and so, you know, let's talk about, you know, before we get into, you know, their expansion of, of services, let's talk about some of the things that go on at Bike Monkey events that, you know, wouldn't happen uh, at a USAC permitted event. Um, you know, where do you see some of the advantages for you aside from the fact that you're buying your own insurance? Oh boy. Um, <laughs> when you're a new event organizer, you, you don't know what to do. You want to put on a bike race. And so you ask around and USA cycling has, uh, sort of all of the answers, you know, sort of like how you put on a bike race. Um, but there's a lot of baggage that comes with that because they have a business model that's built around profiting from people's desire to organize races or to participate in races. And it's, it's driven by the competitive desire, right? points, uh, upgrades, people wanting to get their pro license. Um, what I found out pretty quick, because our, our first couple of events were USAC sanctioned events at the very beginning, you know, mm -hmm. and that was what was available is what I understood. You know, there was Norba and, um, they were part of USAC. And so you would, you would go to their website and you'd register as uh, I think it was a class C race official and you just answer some questions and online on the website and um, check a few boxes and you had your official's license so you could be the official at your race up to a basic level you know and like a right. certain number of participants uh, you had to pay a fee for that um, and then you had to pay a fee for every racer who participated in your event and usually you would pass that on to the racer so um, I don't know what it is now, but it used to be like 10 bucks. So 10 bucks for a one-day license. Well, that only allowed you to race up to the sport level. You could be somebody who is just a total ringer, you know, and there's a lot of people like that who don't take racing seriously. In fact, what I found is that as you evolve as a, a brand new cyclist, brand new uh, mountain biker or whatever, it's like, oh my God, I love this. I want to do this professionally, right? And that, <laughs> I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. And they, yep. they get into it and they get super serious. And, and usually what ends up happening is they get sucked into the culture. And the culture is have a beer, man. Chill out. It's a fucking mountain bike. Like, Let's have some fun. Let's enjoy ourselves. Let's just like, why are you taking it so seriously? And that's that's definitely like the mountain biking culture, right? And even yep. um, to a lesser degree, cross, and to a much lesser degree, road, right? Road racing. Yeah. Um, and, and I and I qualify that because road racing and century rides and grand fondos are very different, and we'll talk about that. So mountain biking, I found out pretty quick that like the guys who are fast they're not serious about points, you know? I mean, the, the, they're, they, especially here in Sonoma County, you've got guys like Roger Bartels or Glenn Fant or, or um, uh, you know, Michael Hosey or, um, you know... Uh, Shane. Shane, yeah, <laughs> Shane, shit. I was going to say Shane. I was like, oh, that guy's a nasty name. Um, we've got some super fast uh, 
guys here that just they ride their bikes all the time and they're super fit because they love riding their bikes and they went through that whole process of racing professionally and and going after points and all of that stuff but then chose the path of I love the bike well they're going to choose to participate in an event that has a low barrier to entry as opposed to oh man I'm I I'm going to be a sandbagger if I race sport um if I want to race professionally, I have to pay at least $60 for an annual license. But guess what? Most of the mountain bike races in California are just like, they're not, uh, people go through McKay for insurance. They go through all the different places for, for insurance. You don't have to go through USA Cycling. Um, and as event organizer now, if you go through McKay, like there's way less paperwork you've got to do. You don't have to have a race official. You don't have to be part of the program. You don't have to deal with awarding points to somebody. It's just so much overhead to be a part of USA Cycling as a mountain bike race that if what you're not trying to offer is you know points upgrades and, and deal with all that hassle, you're really trying to just provide an experience for people. You don't need it. Um, so I figured out that out with mountain bike races. You know, we just we're doing it because we're passionate about it. We want to have a good time. We don't give a shit about points. If you want to do points, go find a USAC race. But most of the mountain bikers I know don't care. Um, you know, it may be different in different parts of the country, but for us in this region, it, it really doesn't matter. And, um, you know, so we went that direction and we, we found really good insurance um, that provide better coverages for us and for the participants than what you get through USA Cycling. And you don't have to have a license, you know, to race our events. You race in the category that you feel best suited for. And us as event promoters, if we see somebody sandbagging, we deal with it, right? It's pretty obvious, <laughs> especially in like series races. Like, dude, you got to move up. I'm not going to score you in this race anymore. We can deal with that. You don't have to have a race official from USA Cycling to figure that out. That's common sense. Like, dude, you're beating the crap out of these people. I think you, you know, need to cat up. Go, go, go race expert or pro. You don't belong here. Um, when it gets to the road thing and what we've done with the Grand Fondo. Um, Levi's Grand Fondo was the second ever organized Grand Fondo in the United States. Prior to that, there was a San Diego Grand Fondo. I think it was sponsored by Campagnolo. Yep. Um, and we weren't even aware of that event, actually, when we started Levi's Grand Fondo. Levi had, had gone on a ride with Giampaolo Pesce of Riviera Restaurant, and they were talking about these events in Europe. and. Levi was like, dude, we got to do one here. Like, we've got the best roads. We've got, we can ride all year long. Um, I know the perfect route. And so we came up with a plan. We organized it and we went and got insurance from an independent provider. Didn't talk to USA Cycling at all about it. And because um, I knew what a headache it would be to have to require that people participating in a, in a group ride, basically to have to go and get a license and have to deal with all of that stuff and then give their contact information, their email address to USA Cycling and then get all the shit in the mail and their email, you know, about who knows what. Um, I mean, it's you're giving away a lot. If you put a big event on and then you sign USA Cycling up, you give all your car participant contact information to a third party. It doesn't make any sense, especially a third party that's in the same industry as you. They should be paying for that, um, but they don't. It's the other way around. And we were able to find better insurance, um, you know, the same price basically, or far less um, per participant 
than we would have had we gone through USA Cycling. So we saved money and got better insurance coverages. Um, at the time, you know, USA Cycling definitely reached out to us and were like, "Yeah, we've got this, you know, thing we're thinking about doing." I mean, this is this isn't something new. It's it's wherever the trend is, um, their business model needs to react to it if they can. But I don't look around any of our events and see a bunch of people who are excited about getting points for participating in Grand Fondos. This isn't Europe. No. <laughs> Grand Fondos here are not Grand Fondos in Europe. And I think that's an important distinction to make because there is a timed component, but we're not part of a series. Um, that is different, though. Um, there are some other organized Grand Fondos in the U.S. that do take it seriously. Um, but we get thousands of people to show up and ride, and we don't have to deal with the headache or the overhead of dealing with USA Cycling for all of these folks. And I'm willing to bet that the ones that are dealing with USA Cycling, there's only a small percentage of the participants who really give a shit about points in the right. Grand Fondo arena in the United States. And so it just doesn't make sense for us. Uh, maybe USA Cycling will be successful with it, but we're not going to sign up for it. it. It just doesn't make sense. Well, Fondos appealed to me kind of as a general concept. They appealed to me for the very reason that I actually stopped road racing. Um, I mean, there were a couple of reasons, but one of the big ones was, you know, it was Sunday. I'm at some stupid industrial park crit. You know, guys are screaming at me. Officials are screaming at everyone else. Um, it's uptight. It's not really fun. And meanwhile, all my friends who weren't busy trying to get Cat 2 upgrade points were back in the South Bay, you know, doing a long ride up into Malibu, riding the canyon roads, having a great time on fantastic descents, seeing the mountains crash into the ocean, these beautiful views. I'm in an industrial park. Um, and so for me, the appeal of the Fondo, again, broadly speaking, just the concept of a Fondo was, let's see, I get to do a fantastic long ride, I get to kick my butt, I get to see something really cool, um, and there's none of the uptight factor of you know doing, uh, doing some stupid criterion. Uh, so it's a longer day, you know, I get more out of the experience, um, you know, I want one of those, you know, classic, you know, Maslow's peak experiences. That's what I want out of a day. And if I can have one of those every weekend, why would I not? And so the moment I heard about Levi's, it's like, oh, <laughs> yeah, go ride roads that I wouldn't be able to find otherwise on my own. You know, because I mean, when I when I would come up here and ride, if it, if I wasn't doing some organized ride here, I'm I'm out on you know, Dry Creek Road, you know, West Dry Creek, um, something like that. I'm not, I wasn't really penetrating the great roads. I don't know how long it would have taken me to find King Ridge without the Fonda. You know, and so that was part of the implicit uh, appeal of, you know, coming up here to do that event. Um, <clears throat> well, think about trying to do one of those scale, that scale of a ride without any support. And I've had readers say exactly that to me. Oh, well, I don't want to support some doper, you know, this guy who's getting rich off of this Fondo. And, you know, I try to explain that. 
But then they still come back to, well, I don't want to be out there with 7,000 people. Okay, fine. Uh, you know, but the thing is, it's like, you, you get out on King Ridge, if you run out of water, you are out of water, son. You know, that is it. Yeah. Um, yeah, and you hope that the rancher who finds you, you know, <laughs> is, pulls his dogs off of your carcass. Is in a good mood, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, you know, back to the USAC question. I mean, I see what they're doing, you know, kind of each of their big initiatives over the last five or six years that I've seen have been purely reactive. You know, there was that moment where they started touting how great high school cycling was as if they were going to take credit for NICA, which isn't under their umbrella either. Um, and now they're going, yeah, gravel's great. Um, you know, yeah, there was, wasn't there a, an organization like they, that tried to pop up and grab some of that market recently? Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, I haven't heard anything from them at all, but I think, I mean, the writing on the wall is there is less and less of a place for that because the cycling demographic in the U.S. seems to be evolving um, pretty dramatically. And the opportunities for creating some governmental structure are, are, are waning. Um, you know, them as an organization, I mean, it, they, there's no reason to bash USA Cycling. I mean, they provide Agreed. a necessary service and they've done a lot to push cycling forward in the US, but I think that fundamentally their model is not um, adaptable to the um, the desires of cyclists. I, fundamentally, I see them as being you know a reactive organization. This thing happens, let's respond to it. This thing happens, let's respond to it. And I don't mean this as a criticism of Derek Bouchard Hall's leadership, because this goes back you know, this is an organizational thing that goes back, you know, through generations of leaders there. Um, they're not entrepreneurial in terms of what can we do to make riding your bike with other people at an event more enjoyable, more yeah. compelling. Um, and that's why they're doing it in the first place, right? Why is somebody out there busting their ass on a cross bike, getting yelled at and drinking because they're having fun? They're there to have fun. It's the whole reason why we throw a leg over the bike in the first place. But every interaction that I've ever had with USA Cycling is, let's make it more militant. Let's make it more structured. Let's make it more... And there's a barrier there. There's, it's like mixing two things that don't mix very well. Yeah. I just ran a photo gallery of a bunch of images from Single Speed Cross Worlds up in Portland. Um, and, okay, so the shot of... Curtis Inglis and Jeremy Seasip. I couldn't see Jeremy too well, but Curtis wasn't exactly smiling. Um, <laughs> but other than that, there was a whole lot of zany, a whole lot of crazy, a whole lot of party. And, you know, had that been a USAC event, I don't see that as something that would have gone down that way. You know, the pot smoking aside, um, you know, the beer would not have happened. The foam would not have happened. The mud-covered exercise balls that everybody had to ride off of a ramp and through would not have happened. Um, Look at the numbers. You have, at any given cross race, 10% of your participation is the pro field. It speaks for itself. 
Hmm. Everybody else is just there. And they not they don't care. Even a lot of the pros are just fast cyclists who don't care. I mean if you, you look at all the people who came and raced our cross race, the series we had over four hundred registered entries. We didn't award anybody a single point. But we gave them great prizes. Yeah. You know? And you do good trophy. That's something to walk away with and be stoked that you came up and you know you spent a hundred bucks that weekend and you had a great time with your friends. It was three days long, and um, you know you left with something much more valuable and more important than points that you're going to use so that you can. I, I don't know what I mean. Upgrade your category and and race just as hard as you did before, and at some point realize that you're not going to ever make money at this and you know you get your pro license and then it's like well i gotta you know keep paying them paying this thing now what yeah yeah and i mean you know one of the nice things is you know i i could have registered for anything that you know males were allowed to register for and the funny thing was i was you know i had to really think about well do i belong in the c's or do i belong in the b's you know where do i belong and it put the onus on me to figure that out. And, uh, you know, I mean, some of the lap times for the C's, I would have been blown out the back. I was blown out of the back of the B's, but perhaps not as badly. <laughs> you know, and, and one of the things, too, is with cycling, is if you're doing it frequently, you have people who know you. You've got friends that you race with on a regular basis, and everybody knows where you belong. And if you're sandbagging, you're going to get shit for it. And if it's obvious enough and bad enough, the race organizer should say something to you to make it fair for his participants, his or her participants. You know, it's um, it's a common sense thing. It doesn't need so much bureaucracy around it. It really doesn't. You know, and and as a race organizer, what I you know I don't need someone else showing up the night before getting in the way and that's all I've ever really found is that people are getting in the way I mean they use an antiquated scoring system you know and it just you're better off just doing stuff on your own if you have the capacity to do it yourself and you want it done a certain way do it yourself there there are a million different resources that you can use to create an event and as event organizers it's not just me, it's everybody who does this. I mean, we're, we're uh, creative people, we're, we're artists, we're, we're trying to create something that's in, that um, we've imagined. And um, you don't need things getting in your way when you're trying to do that. So my advice is just don't let things get in the way. Do it, yeah. do it the way you want to. But it makes it's, sense. Not, it's not always that easy to do, right? I mean, like I said in the very beginning when you're a new event organizer, you don't know where to turn. Sure, sure. So, uh, you and I traded a few emails about the Hope Pass, uh, your your season long entry, uh, and you said you're working on some tweaks for that. So we won't go into that right now. But I'm curious. I mean, what other sorts of things are on the horizon this next year for Bike Monkey that we can talk about? Well, um, we are looking at some pretty big changes in the way that we approach our own events. Um, 
it's really difficult to make one day events work um, because there's so many of them, especially like cross season, right? This yeah. is a good example. We used to put on a cross race um, once every two or three weeks in December and January or November and December. Um, and that would be our Santa Rosa Cross Cup series. Well, our participants have to come to Santa Rosa every time there's a race if they want to participate in that series. That's three separate trips to Santa Rosa. Um, I want to do different things. I don't want to go to Santa Rosa three times to participate in the series if I live in Santa Cruz or vice versa. You know, three different trips down there, the drive down, the drive back, that's hours in the car. Um, you know, it, it just doesn't... We have the capacity and the structure at Bike Monkey to do more with our efforts. And so what we created last year was the three-day cross tournament, Santa Rosa Cup. And it's three days in a row. We have a night race on Friday. We've got a Saturday race. And then on Sunday, we, do, we have a completely different court location for right. our third race. And it is a massive undertaking to get all of that to work right. It takes a ton of people, it, you know, a ton of planning, because we've got to move all of our equipment and, and reorganize stuff. And while we're doing one race, we've got another course being built. Um, but as far as the amount of effort that it takes us, it's only incrementally more than the effort that it takes us to... Um, plan like planning leading up to the amount of planning that goes into it is only incrementally more to plan a three-day event than it is to plan a one-day event since i would almost say it's it's almost the same amount of planning because when you sit down to plan you just write down a couple other things have some other people you got to call um way more staff of course because it's three days worth of staff but that part's easy you show up and, and do the work as long as you planned ahead of time it's good so we're looking at all of our other events um, like Sonomas and Anadel, um, and uh, I mean, so Boggs and Wente are both already multi-day events. Basically, like there's a lot of different components to right. it, um, and we want to do fewer of them. So we don't want to do events every weekend. Like we get tired too. I want to have a weekend off. So we're sort of evolving, I guess. For next year, I would say that our evolution is is starting to shift towards multi-day events. Um, we're talking about turning Annadale into a multi-day event, where Annadale may be the championship race in a three-day mountain bike stage race. Oh We've been talking gosh. about it for years, right? And we have a smorgasbord of, uh, of route options in Sonoma County and uh, park systems that are uh, welcoming of the concept. It'll be a lot of work, um, but the, the end result will be the type of event we want to produce, which is different, it's it's better, it's more exciting, it's, you know, we feel better about it at the end of the day. The planning that goes into it is incrementally more, we have a lot more staff that we have to have involved, but we're creating something memorable. And that feels good at the end of the day. Above anything else, that feels good, you know. You can come to work and or go home at the end of the day and be fulfilled. Be feel like you did something that made people happy, made them find, um, you know, an excuse to 
take time off of work. Um, it's it's there's uh, some reassurance in that when you do something that is impactful enough that people are still talking about it weeks afterwards. So that's our evolution. Um, whether we'll get there with all of our events next year, we're not sure. But that's our that's our goal, and that's our evolution, and that's the trajectory where we're headed. And um, we just don't want to do these one-day events anymore. It's uh, it's not really where an organization of our size. We, you know, we're not like a huge organization. We're not a mom and pop organization. We're somewhere in this like no man's land of like we're not really sure who we are <laughs> and we're always figuring that out but i think we've figured out that this is what we should be doing now you know we've evolved in the past maybe not but now this is this is where our our head is at um i'm actually meeting with north star ski mm -hmm. resort yeah over christmas um because they want to have us produce a three-day stage mountain bike race out of their resort next year and Ooh. so that's our, uh, that may be the first uh, three-day mountain bike race that we do. Wow. Well, I mean, the experience that I had at Wente, just epically good. Uh, the, you know, the most fun I've had going off to a mountain bike race in my life, you know, and that course was just so phenomenally fun. Um, you know, well, I'll, I'll be there. <laughs> um, cool Carlos thanks man really appreciate this my pleasure so that was a great time that I had with Carlos um, I we... love that guy <laughs> I, I am, I'm just I mean I, I don't mean that in any you know in any ridiculous way and I mean it in a in a two hetero guys kind of way but I love you, he man. has put together so many great races and has such a fantastic perspective. I just, he is, uh, he is just a treasure as far as uh, race promoters go. I am so glad that Bike Monkey exists. Yeah. The best, some of the best events I have ever ridden anywhere are and, Bike Monkey events. Oh, absolutely. I mean, as I made clear in the interview, you know, I, mm. I moved here because of his events. You know, they oh, yeah. just became such... Uh, such great opportunities to go out and, and encounter uh, parts of this place. Um, I'm sure if he had been in another place, you know, just as attractive and was pro uh, doing the same sort of event promoting, I probably would have moved there instead. Uh, the thing I really loved uh, mm -hmm. about this interview was you, Carlos is, is about as close to uh, Mr. Spock as anyone I've ever encountered, he's he's kind of all action and no talk. Um, getting him to sit and talk for forty minutes was was not easy. Um, uh, but I mean, he's certainly willing and everything. But he's a guy who's always in motion. He's always doing stuff, and yet he shoehorns in hockey and cycling. Um, and so, not only is the guy incredibly driven um, and effective, but he's also crazy fit. I really hate that about him. Um, but anyway, um, you know, maybe what we can do next is uh, uh, get Derek Bouchard Hall from USA Cycling. That's what I'm going to try to do. All right. Fantastic. Cool. The more interviews, the better. Love talking or hearing from these uh, guys with insight into different, uh, in different parts of the industry. Yeah. Yeah. And 
you know, if ever there's been a guy who can turn things around for USA Cycling, I do think it's Derek Bouchard Hall. Um, you know, he's he's definitely one class act, and I've I've been excited to see, you know, what he's doing for them. Um, cool. All righty. Well, I think this brings up to paceline picks. What's oh, your? Can I go first? Yes. Fantastic. So my paceline pick is something that I recently bought, and they are currently sold out. But of course, they'll be coming back. Um, I and it is the Silka Seat Roll Premio, and I am not the only person who loves this. But it's basically a the seat bag reimagined. Um, you stuff your CO two cartridges, a tube, your tool, your lever into a nice, well-organized fold, you know, roll out, uh, roll, fold it over and then tighten it across your seat, uh, rails with a boa, uh, a boa line and dial super fast and easy is so much easier to get into your, into your bag or your roll than it is with a traditional, um, seat pack and zipper where you're really having to stuff and cram and probably uh, eventually wear a hole into your tube. So as a person who uses a seat bag, I think this is just a a really well-considered reinvention of the seat bag, and I'm stoked to have it on my bike. Yeah, it's pretty dynamite, and the fact that, you know, it uses the boa closure um, isn't the, the neat thing. It's the absence of Velcro. You know, mm. I, yep. I, you know, it's like, I don't, I don't care how you close, close it. Certainly the boa closure is novel. Just don't use Velcro. Yeah. Like you said, you know, don't wear out those expensive bibs. Amen, brother. And speaking of, uh, well, hopefully not expensive bibs, but you know, very high quality ones. I'm Any in, good bibs are expensive. That's just the way it is, but they're worth it. Right. So I'm in the midst of reviewing um, a kit from Giordana. This is their G-Shield collection. So these are thermal pieces. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. If you're going to say G-Shield, I'm allowed to laugh. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. That's Go ahead. Go ahead. Please continue. So they're thermal pieces um, with a water-resistant coating on them. But also, it's you're beginning to see this in some apparel, this glass bead technology that is stunningly reflective. Um, you know, uh, deer meat headlights, sort of bright. And uh, so there are leg warmers. They also do knee warmers, uh, arm warmers, uh, the bibs, and then even the jersey uh, at mm-hmm. the cuffs. They've got um, this reflective technology. But yeah, so it's, it's reflective. It's water-resistant. And it's thermal, um, and this stuff is pretty terrific. I'm I'm really impressed with this, um, and it comes in at a price that is you know lower than some of the super premium stuff. But I'm my experience so far is that this is super premium stuff. So anybody looking for last minute Christmas gifts um, where maybe price is less of an o- op- object, uh, this is some neat stuff. Um, and certainly there will be a review of it sometime soon on Red Kite Prayer. I got a tagline idea for them. Super premium quality at a premium price. Ooh, I like that. I did that right on the fly, man. See, did- this is what you get when you have podcasting pros. Yes. Or, or, <laughs> or high-level amateurs. This is what you get when you have a podcasting pro who is ill and lets the other two guys record anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, how's Miss he going to stop? Yeah, how's he going to stop us? 
<laughs> well, he can delete it while he's editing. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> oops. So there's that. <laughs> there's that. Yeah. He wouldn't do that. Oh, well, uh, I'm Patrick Brady. Um, you can see my work at Red Kite Prayer. Um, and you are? And I'm Fatty, and you can see my work at Red Kite Prayer as well. And we wish everyone a very Merry Christmas. And are we going to do one more episode before the new year? Uh, yes. Yes, we will. Awesome. So we'll be back okay. uh, in between Christmas and New Year's. We had to do a year-end wrap-up. Yes. Let's not, though. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was actually thinking we were. Okay. No, maybe we will. We're going to keep people in suspense. Thanks, everyone, for listening to The Pace Line. And from Michael Houghton, bye-bye. Yeah, get better, dude. That was our best episode ever. Thank <laughs> you.